Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation with John Byron on First and Second Thessalonians. Scott, man, I've got to say one of the things that I have really enjoyed about this Story of God commentary series is just getting to hear um, the heart for the church that all of the the pastors and theologians and New Testament scholars that we've talked with. And it really shines through in our conversation with John, doesn't it? Well, it does. And, uh, you know, these are two letters that uh, I believe get lost in conversations about eschatology and the rapture and you know, the man of sin. And it's sad because these are phenomenal letters, early Christian letters that Paul writes and reveals his heart, his passion, trying to generate hope and work ethic and all these sorts of things. So I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to a conversation with John. He's a, he's an excellent writer, an excellent teacher, and a very clear communicator about the major themes that uh, show up in First uh, and Second Thessalonians. So, um, I'm really, I'm really excited about having him on our podcast today. Yeah, if you're in need of hope, who honestly, who isn't in, in need of hope or want to hear a message of hope, um, you're in the right podcast today, right? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Cool. Well, thanks okay. for thanks for joining us today. Hope you enjoy the conversation. I want to welcome John Byron, uh, a friend of mine who's a New Testament student, a New Testament professor, teaches at Ashland Theological Seminary in Ashland, Ohio, um, and he has been connected to uh, the Jimmy Dunn students uh, over the years in our annual meetings and our dinners, and so I've gotten to know John and known him for many years and uh, been to his home and so when when the list of commentaries came up for the Story of God Bible Commentary, John was very high on my list. And so uh, we asked John to do First and Second Thessalonians. And in this, um, uh, our podcast today, I'm going to ask John a couple simple questions, but also some things that I think will help pastors. So John, uh, I want to welcome you to the Kingdom Roots podcast. And I, I'd like you to begin by saying uh, what was the most demanding aspect of writing a commentary on these two letters. Sure. Well, uh, first of all, I do want to say is that writing this commentary has probably been one of the highlights of my scholarly career. Um, and Scott may or may not remember this, but when he first contacted me for this series, he wanted me to do a different book of the uh, New Testament. And I actually wrote back and said, please let me do first and second Thessalonians. And so he was kind enough to do that um, because this is, this is a pair of books I've been living with uh, probably since I was in seminary. Um, and, you know, and having said that as an introduction, that means I've spent a lot of time. It's, it's the first two books I ever translated from Greek into English after learning Greek. I spent a lot of time doing exegesis, but what I actually found to be probably one of the most challenging aspects is, how does one in the, particularly the section on living the story, 
how does one bring a good interpretation down to, uh, and I don't mean down in intelligence, but down to the ground level where people are actually out there doing ministry. It's very easy for me to sit in my office and do exegesis and talk about what a text means, but to actually be able to connect it to people's lives and ministries, that's what I found to be the most challenging, but yet also the most rewarding. Also, keeping in mind that, you know, you're working with such a wide audience, it's not like when you know that you're preaching to the same, you know, 60, 100, 200 people in your church. Um, you have to be able to uh, pitch pitch widely uh, to your audience, yet make sure that it's relevant to as many people as possible. So, Well, John, I, re- uh, I don't remember this about the original commentary, and then you wanted First and Second Thessalonians. I just don't—that one slipped out of my mind. I, I know— I know where you are on my list of people that we wanted to invite, so uh, you were up there. But but I remember when you first started writing, you said, I'm doing fine on the first section, first right. two sections, but I'm really struggling on this third part. And I remember thinking, oh, you're going to keep struggling because it's all the way through the book. And then there was a point, I would say maybe you were into chapter two of First Thessalonians, when it started clicking for you. Yeah, I would agree. Um you know, it's it's kind of like when you're when you do a lot of public speaking or even as a teacher, after a few years, one day you sort of walk into that podium or that classroom and you suddenly realize that you have found your stride and your style. Um, and after working through the letters for a while and beginning to beginning to try and think about how am I going to apply this, suddenly it's it's I'll, I'll attribute it partly to the Holy Spirit partly to hard work and sweat, suddenly the light just comes on and you begin to realize, okay, this is where I need to be directing this. But I also need to give credit to, and I do in the front of my, in front of the commentary, I had, oh, maybe a half dozen pastor friends who I could call and send sections to. I knew I couldn't do this part by myself. And so I, I talked to him. What's it like to be a leader who's having your integrity challenged, as Paul does in chapter two? Um, and, I, and I got to hear back from them and include their stories, which, at least from my perspective, is one of the rich uh, parts of that commentary. Yeah. Well, um, and, and that part uh, begins to shine through in your commentary as, as you continue to write it. And I think that... Um, John, you've really hit on something that's sensitive to uh, New Testament professors, and they should be more sensitive to as well. Sometimes we can get so lost in the historical and the exegetical that we have no sense of the pastoral and missional and devotional. And uh, and that's that's easy for us to do. We associate what we do sometimes with just history and rigorous exegesis. But it's after all, it's about life. Paul didn't write these things just so uh, people would have something to study in an exegesis class. So now, uh, John, you're good at archaeology and the ancient world. Tell tell us something about the, you know, they call it Thessaloniki today, not Thessalonica or Thessalonica. Um, Tell us something about Thessaloniki that you think is valuable for interpreting the letter. Uh, I think one thing that's really helpful is that as you begin studying the archaeology and just the area of that ancient city is recognizing how many different 
shrines and temples that there were in that ancient city. Uh, in fact, the earliest synagogue we can find in the city, at least up to this point, uh, doesn't even date until the second century, which means whatever synagogue Paul was visiting, according to Acts 17, we've not yet discovered it or it, or it just doesn't look like we expect it to. But when I, was, uh, when, when I think about all of these shrines and temples, which is not untypical for the Greco-Roman world, yep. but when I think about it, particularly when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, um, uh, where Paul talks about the reception or the welcome that the Thessalonians gave him, and how what everybody is bragging about or talking about is, is that you turned from idols to worship the true and living God. Um, at least in a North American setting, that doesn't really resonate with us quite as much as it would if you're living in a place like Thessaloniki um, today, where you can still see the remains of these shrines everywhere. Um, the, the, you know, religion was a crowded marketplace in the first century, much more yeah. so than today. Yeah, yeah. John, I've been to Thessaloniki just one time. Um, two, two big impressions for me. The first was, it's a massive city. It is huge. There's a, well, I don't know, over a million people who live in the in the city, and uh, most people in the United States, Christians, maybe have heard of Thessalonica. Uh, they might not even connect Thessalonica with the Thessalonian letters, but they would have no idea how big that city is. The second thing was, the ruins in the downtown area it was just that one forum wasn't very exciting to me. I, I guess I'm, I'm fascinated by Ephesus and now a little bit more by uh, Laodicea and Pompeii because of all you can see. Um, so, uh, so to me, the, uh, what we got to see there wasn't all that impressive, but yes, there's the, the studies of Thessaloniki uh, today, the archeologists have done great work and there's all kinds of things that they've uncovered. And, um, it helps us understand the letter. And John, I think this this is something that is characteristic maybe of me and of how I teach these letters, because it's usually uh, in a class on the whole, all the letters of Paul. So I give just a little bit of attention to the Thessalonian correspondence, is that people are just kind of fascinated with First Thessalonians 4 through 5 and Second Thessalonians chapter 2 on eschatology, and then they move on. Um, you can say something about eschatology, but what are the themes about Thessalonian correspondence that you think are particularly valuable for the church today, for pastors to teach, to preach about, that you think are, these are things that are really valuable that we're ignoring because we get lost in discussions about the rapture? Yeah, that, that's good. I'll, I'll approach that from two points. First of all, from the standpoint of ministering to the church as a whole, um, the church in Thessalonica, it, it seems to me as I was doing my work that this was a church that had either lost or given up hope. And it's interesting, Paul starts out in chapter one, verse three, I believe it is. He talks about, you know, your, your, your faith, your love and your hope. And then when he brings up those same, uh, the, those same uh, words in chapter three, he leaves off the word hope. And uh, when you get to chapter four, Paul then uses that word again, where he talks about us not grieving over those who have died um, at, without hope, like the Gentiles. 
Um, and what I discovered with all of that, Scott, and what really was brought to, to the fore for me in the, particularly 1 Thessalonians was the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus and the centrality of resurrection as Christian hope. Mm. Um, I, love, I love theology. I, I love the history and everything. But what I really began to realize in Paul's letters, again, afresh, was without the resurrection, all of this really means nothing. Mm -hmm. Very uh, good. Yeah. The resurrection is our hope, and and it is a hope. We it's hard to believe, it's hard to comprehend, yet it is that which we hope for. Uh, go ahead. That's a good theme uh, for people to talk about, and I'm sure they can unpack several chapters of First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, from that uh, angle. What's what's some other themes? Well, one thing that I really discovered in this letter is unlike, um, well, you know, we call 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, we call those the pastoral letters, and I understand that. But I actually think that out of many of the letters, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, you really get to hear the heart of Paul as pastor. Uh, again, thinking of 1st Thessalonians 3, uh, here's a guy who he doesn't know what's going back, going on back in Thessalonica after he had to leave so quickly. Um, and it, he's like, you know, I couldn't take it any longer. I had to send Timothy to find out. He's worried that somehow he may have run in vain. And, and I, I tell this to my students, and I pick up, up on this in uh, Philippians chapter 2. From a standpoint of a pastor, we're all very concerned at times, maybe not publicly, but at least quietly in our hearts, that somehow we're going to fail at ministry, that somehow we're going to get it wrong and not be successful. And when I read 1 Thessalonians or I read Philippians 2, I see, you know what? Paul felt that way too. Yep. And what I discover is immediately, suddenly, Paul is not the fourth member of the Trinity as sometimes we make him out to be, but he is a human being who has the same exact struggles we do. And I tell my students who are in pastoral ministry preparing, you're not all that different than Paul was. What you need to do is put the same hope in, 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 in the gospel that Paul does. You know, John, when he says, I, I use 2 Corinthians 2, 12 to 13, and then uh, jump to chapter 7 uh, for a similar type thing. But he says, this is a very interesting, uh, this is a very revealing, vulnerable moment in 1 yeah. Thessalonians 1, chapter 3, verse 6. Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. You know, that's a good report. But notice what he says. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us right. and that you long to see us just as we long to see us. Like, hey, you guys like me and I like you. And I'm really glad to find out that you still like me. I mean, this is this is it's not the way we talk about Paul. No, it's, it's a giant sigh of relief. Yes. Um, you know, in some ways, I've compared it and with the most recent rescue of the uh, soccer team from the, the, the cave in Thailand. Um, Paul, you, you can almost hear him exhaling in this letter. Uh, Timothy is returned and everything is fine. Um, and I'll add something to that verse that you just mentioned, uh, Scott, in chapter three, verse six. As you notice, you know, uh, Paul, he says, you know, Timothy has come back and uh, he brought us the good news which is the very same word, as you know, in Greek there for preaching the gospel. Yep, and yep. it's the only time Paul ever uses it outside of that context. And, and picking up here on I. Howard Marshall's uh, work in this letter, 
Um, I really have come to be convinced that Paul does this purposely, um, that Paul, by hearing about the good things that God was doing and continue to do in Thessalonica, he was, if you will, re-evangelized or gospelized. Um, we so often think that the gospel comes in, does its job, and then moves on to the next place once you're saved. Uh, I think we have a, a little bit of a peek into here about the ongoing nature of evangelism, that it's an ongoing experience that we, we can all have over time. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right, so we got hope, and we got, let's say, Pat, Paul is pastor experience. And then that other one, he says, where is this? I'm looking. For, I was just looking at this. Uh, where he talks about father and mother. Oh, we dealt with each. You know that we dealt with each of you. In chapter two, yeah. Yeah, as a father deals with his own children. Now, I like that. Each of you encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of the kingdom. So he sees himself as a father. This isn't a, a common experience. And Paul also at times uses, he mixes father and mother with his relationship with the Thessalonians. So... Um, I've, John, I want, I want to affirm something you said. I've often said first and second Timothy and Titus are called pastoral epistles, but maybe the most pastoral epistle is first and is first and second Corinthians and Thessalonians belongs up there as well. And mm -hmm. before long, I'm going to have the pastoral epistles at the bottom of my list for past for the most pastoral letters of Paul. So, uh, all right. So hope. Paul is pastor. Any other theme that you think uh, can be helpful? Yeah, I would say there's another theme in here that's maybe a little bit less popular. Um, I either call it discipline or order. Mm -hmm. um, you see this in 1 Thessalonians 5. You see it in 2 Thessalonians 3. Um, more so in the second letter. Uh, Paul is concerned that the community practice communal discipline. And I don't necessarily mean here just bringing correction, uh, but discipline in that in order for us all to live, work, and worship together, um, we need to live and act in the ways that Christ has called us to. And, with you know, love and charity. Yet when one of us does step out of line, um, or is, or is causing, if you will, negative waves in the community, we as a community have a responsibility to work on that together. Mm -hmm. um, that's not a message that is very popular today. Um, and I, I'll admit, I, when I was writing the, the Living the Story section of my commentary, um, I went down to our library here, and it's amazing how little has been written on the idea of good ch biblical church discipline. There's lots of models out there, but whether they're actually based on scriptural uh, passages is another question. John, you know, one of your students, Julie Murdoch, is one of right. our students now, and she's thinking of doing her D-Min project on church discipline. And the funny thing for me was I thought, what are you going to do? You're going to have some people you can discipline the church so you can then study them to see if see if this is working. It's a, it's a very difficult topic, and she's got some very, very good angles and ideas about it. So it, it's going to be exciting to see how she works on it. But it is, uh, you you touched the, the sensitive point is uh, there's not a lot written because this is a very, very difficult topic. And some of the stuff that has been written, even what Calvin wrote in the 16th century, is so harsh 
that you think, whoa, you know, I mean, people start missing on Wednesday nights and he wanted to knock them out for a couple of weeks. Um, so, uh, but I, I, I really like that. And I, and I think church discipline, uh, this is something that uh, has come to my, uh, it's a conviction of mine. Church discipline only works when a church has created a culture of, of responsibility and love and nurture. So, I mean, parents can discipline their children and children can be irritated by it um, and they can guide them and they can be a little irritated by that. But it's because of a loving context that you can get by with it. Many times people want to start church discipline with someone with whom they have almost no relationship. And that's just that's just not going to work. So right. a whole culture is is required and that in, includes the pastor and everybody else is involved. All right, John, we can't we can't go on too long without you saying a few words about the eschatology passages in these two letters. And and I don't you know, this is a, this is a green light. You can let it rip if you want. People people aren't going to write in and say, "Hey, you don't, you didn't teach pre-trib rapture or something like that." So um, well, you know, I know you're as irritated as I am by some of the stuff that goes on with Christian eschatology. So uh, let, let's hear your wisdom on this. Well, I think um, one of the things that I, one of the big takeaways I had, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I actually use this commentary along with Gordon Fee and some others for my uh, exegesis in Greek class. Uh, so I have a chance for the students to read this. And one of the big takeaways that I think I've had over the years in working this is that like particularly in First Thessalonians 4, where, the, you know, the idea of a rapture and things like that comes forth is uh, we've really missed the point of what Paul is trying to do here. He is he's not trying to give us a, uh, a roadmap to the end of the world. He's trying to give us hope. As, as I start out here, yeah, saying, yeah. encourage one another with these words. Um, so right away. Uh, I know growing up sometimes in the context I found myself, Scott, um, this passage was anything but comforting. Um, it was used as a billy club over my head. It was, you know, you better be careful or we're all going to disappear um, and you're going to be left behind. Uh, so that, that's that's uh, that's not what Paul is doing here. Yeah. Um, John, one time when I was I was a oh, I had to be about. 10 years old, maybe, no, 12 years old. We, uh, my parents had gone to church and they, I thought they were going to be home at like seven o'clock and it was here at nine o'clock. And I just got totally panicked. I thought the rapture has come. My neighbors, none of them were Christians. So I couldn't look next door to see if they were home. Nobody was coming by and down the street. And I thought the rapture has occurred and I've been left behind. So I was scared to death of that kind of stuff. And, and, and I grew up with that kind of thing. So just a personal yeah. story. Yeah. Well, and I will say the same as, you know, when my parents came to faith in Christ, I was, I was just uh, maybe 10 or 11 years old. And at that time, uh, late great planet Earth and all those kinds of things were huge. Um, and I remember my father one night, I think this is actually in the commentary. Uh, my father one night was talking about how he expected the Lord to return before my sister and I were uh, were teenagers. And my sister burst into tears and said, but I want to get married. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, but, you know, at the same time, 
I think that really does speak that picture for me to the tension we live in when we come to eschatology. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, we do look forward and hope that the Lord will return soon. On the other hand, we know that we've been given the precious gift of a life here, and we have things that we want to do, things that maybe the Lord wants us to do. And there are two sides of the same coin. And it's interesting here that, you know, on the one hand, Paul in chapter four says, encourage one another, don't worry about it. But then when he gets into the very next chapter, which, of course, they weren't chapters when he wrote this, he talks about what they should be doing because they are children of the day. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean, you're not children of the night. Yeah. Um, you've got a life to live, not to be sitting around waiting for the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Or sitting around debating the rapture question and, right. uh, and, and fighting about eschatological tables. And it is, um, I, I, uh, I sometimes threaten that I want to write a book called Eschatology for the Rest of Us or uh, Revelation for the Rest of Us because— uh, when we when we get lost in these debates about future, uh, we we lose contact with the grinding realities of the first century Christians. And I think you've nailed it, John, with hope. He was trying to instill hope, not satisfy curiosity so that they could get up in the morning and say, now, this is what's going to happen next. And I'm looking for that today. This was this was all about hope. And it was very existentially real to these people. So. That's uh, that's good. Now, John, um, in closing, uh, a last word. I'm wondering if you have any any things you'd like um, our listeners to hear about the Thessalonian letters, other than the fact that I hope that you've inspired some of them to read these uh, more carefully and even teach them and buy your book and read it. Um, any uh, final thoughts that you just want people who read these letters to know about? I think one of the great things about reading uh, Paul's two, you know, these two letters to Thessalonians is uh, these are probably his earliest ex extant correspondence, depending upon what one decides whether these are Galatians. But one thing that I tell my students and that I come away from these letters is when you're reading these two letters, you realize that from the very beginning, the church didn't have it all right. There were things that from the day one that needed to be corrected, questions that need to be answered. And sometimes, like in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's pretty clear Paul's trying to figure this out as he goes along. He encounters a situation, and you almost get the impression he's, he's scratching his head, trying to figure out, okay, what would the Lord say here? What does Scripture say? How can I apply this? And I, I tell my students, and I, I actually I just finished preaching the last two weeks on some of these letters. And I tell people, you know, there is no such thing as the golden age of the church. Mm -hmm. The church has been messed up, to put it frankly, at times from the very beginning. And you know what? That is actually good news for us in many ways. Mm -hmm. It means that what we see in the New Testament reflects the same challenges, the same hopes, and even our shortcomings. Those are there in the New Testament. We've not been given perfection. We've been given honesty, um, and we've been given the tools through Paul and others in order to help us approach life with Christ together. That's good. Very good. Very good. Well, John, thanks so much for uh, interrupting your schedule or uh, making time for our podcast. And I hope the uh, readers or the listeners 
get as much out of this as I did listening to you talk about this. This was really clear and uh, succinct and right on topic for the themes that matter for the church and for Christian living. So thanks right. so much, John. Thanks a lot. Have a good summer. Okay. Thanks, John, and thank you, our listeners, for joining us again today. Uh, we hope this has been a, a really encouraging opportunity just to see, man, Paul at the ground level doing his work of um, what it looked like for the kingdom to take root in that first century. And so um, we hope, like Scott said, that this encourages you to um, study Thessalonians, hopefully with a little bit more perspective, a little bit more background. And um, we're grateful, as always, to have you join us on the pad- podcast, and we're looking forward to joining you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.